welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We continue in our study through the Epistle to the Colossians this morning as God's church. We're going to continue through the flow of, of uh, the scripture that talks about Paul's ministry as a pastor. We've studied up to this point about his ministry as a called man of God to teach the word of God. And now he moves in Colossians 1, 26 and 27 today into the passion of his ministry, which was to reveal a great mystery about the Christian and Christ. And so we come to verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1 of Colossians. Let us hear the word of God. Paul writes about this mystery, and he calls it the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is God's magnificent word. May he reveal its truth to us in deeper ways than ever today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much. Amen and amen. Well, as I said, we are going through a section where uh, Pastor Paul has... uh, found a need to defend his ministry because of uh, false teachers that were influencing the church at Colossae to whom he was writing. These teachers were not only deconstructing the doctrine that Paul had instructed to be taught there, the very word of God, but they were also uh, attacking Paul's character as a spiritual leader because these false teachers wanted to take his authority and put themselves above the believer's. And so Paul had to take a few lines in this epistle as he was reciting it in his jail cell and as it was being transcribed by one of his team to defend himself. And he uh, had to answer their criticism. Now, criticism, in a way, is difficult to live with, but it's also good news if you're in God's work because it means you're doing something. I'll never forget reading Chuck Swindoll's book ages ago called Hand Me Another Brick which is still a great title, about life in the ministry, how to serve God. And he says, if you're not being criticized, it's probable that you're not doing anything, which turns out to be true, especially in God's work. Uh, Yeah, acting and doing and standing is, uh, is something that's often criticized. Now, Paul was in prison, but his ministry was still greatly expanding. And many churches had been planted under his ministry, and they were growing. There were eventually seven churches around Colossae, or six other churches around Colossae. They were the seventh that continued to grow and expand through these years. So Paul was eminently successful, and he was making his mark. But I don't know if you've noticed, as soon as you make your mark in life, you turn around, and there's somebody standing there with an eraser. Have you ever noticed this? It happens in everyday life, and it happens in the spiritual life. And so Paul was going through that. 
And he had to take a stand. So in these verses, beginning at verse, uh, really verse 24, all the way through chapter 2 and verse 5, he pauses from the theology and he talks about a pastor's life, really. It's a mini-series, if you will, about Paul telling them what kind of pastor he is and making a declaration of his character. Now, last week he began by talking about the fact that he had a calling from God, as all pastors must He talked about in verse 23 and 24 about becoming a minister. The the Greek text there has more the idea of being placed into ministry by God, ordained as a way to translate the word became there. And, And so Paul talked about four things, that a minister has a calling that, number one, must come from God. You are not taking a job when you enter the ministry. You are receiving a calling. Secondly, it's a calling that often involves suffering. Verse 24, he said that, He often filled up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And thirdly, he said, every called pastor has a sacrificial calling to serve the church, not himself. He is a minister according to the stewardship, verse 25, of God given to him for the body, for churches. So pastors serve not themselves, they serve the flock to whom they have been given. And then finally, he said something about a calling that's very important, and that is that every pastor has a calling that primarily rotates uh, around declaring the word of God. He said, all of this is exercised when I make the word of God fully known, end of verse 25. So a pastor's calling is a preaching calling. Now, I went into this in a lot of detail last week, and I got a little autobiographical and talked about some of my life in the ministry then and now, and And afterward, a number of you came up to me and you said, man, that was a really heavy message. That was sobering. Even during the week, uh, one or two people said, you know, I've always prayed for you, but now I'm really praying for you. Really had no idea how difficult a pastor's calling can be and what a burden it is. and, And I appreciate that. And yes, there is often burden in ministry. But there is also blessing. And that is a dimension that Paul moves into now. That's his next point, if you will. That uh, ministry is a chance to pursue a passion. And a passion that is built around the idea of people coming to know who they are in Christ. And that's what this next couplet of verses is all about. Now notice Paul says at the end of verse 25, God has put a a burden on me to make the word of God fully known. There's a comma there in our English. And then he goes on and and he moves immediately into this phrase, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. The point Paul is making is God has called me to teach the whole counsel of God, which I must do. And a big part of that is, is to reveal the mystery that God has hidden for you in his word. So, It's preaching with a purpose. Paul says, one of the things God has put on my life to do is, as I preach, to show you this wonderful ministry that he begins to explain. What's this ministry all about? Well, it's something that God has hidden in the past, verse 26, for ages and generations, but has now revealed to his saints, to his people in the New Testament age, if you will. And it is a uh, marvelous mystery that revolves around a great truth, verse 27, and that is Christ in us, the hope of glory. There's so much here. There's mystery that now turns to marvel as God reveals it. 
And Paul had a passion to help his people understand this. So today I want to speak about, in a pastor's life, what his passion is, one of his greatest passions. And that is to help people understand Christ in them and to help them taste that reality. To teach it to you, I'm going to open it and look at it in three ways. So walk with me through this couplet of verses. First of all, we need to understand that Paul is a pastor and we today as pastors, if I speak autobiographically, a pastor has a passion to help people understand a wonderful mystery. This is pretty obvious. He begins by describing this passion as he teaches the word of God Verse 25, as he does it, a mystery hidden for ages is revealed. That's what he said his preaching of the word would partially do. And uh, you're probably wondering what that's all about. Now everybody loves a mystery, right? That's why we get addicted to all those series we binge watch on TV, right? But this is far greater and far richer than anything that entertained you until 2 a.m. this morning. Really, we need to answer two questions. Here's the first one. What is a biblical mystery? Because there's a distinction between what we look at as everyday human mysteries and what the Bible says is a biblical mystery. Human mystery, well, we understand that. When we use the phrase, it's a mystery, we, we use it in one of two ways. One is when we say that something is a mystery, we're kind of shrugging our shoulders and we're saying, and we'll never understand it. So some human mysteries are unknowable. We'll never understand it. It's a mystery to us. Some things in science are a mystery. Some things that have happened in the past history that we'll never be able to fully know all the facts are a mystery. So some human mysteries are simply things we'll never know. We say the word with a shrug. Others are mysteries that we can know if we as human beings unravel them. And uh, that's another way we use it. So human mysteries are either unknowable because we'll never grasp all the facts, or we in our own thinking can unravel them, whether it's the ending to a, a mystery novel or whether it's maybe unwrapping a dimension of nature as we study it more. So people think of human mystery as either unknowable or we can figure this out. Well, that's not the biblical kind. The biblical kind of mystery is something that God has always known. And the scripture says God knows all things. And in the Old Testament, I think it's Deuteronomy, he, he, he says uh, the secret things belong to me. So God knows all things, but he doesn't reveal everything. But there are certain things that God has always known, but he's chosen to keep hidden in the ages past, but has now revealed in what you could call the New Testament age, to believers. When you take a look at verse 26, that really defines what a biblical mystery is. It's something that God knows, but he kept it hidden for ages and generations, but has now revealed to his saints. So notice a biblical mystery is not something we figure out. It's something God reveals. How does he do it? Verse 25, he does it through the, the, the teaching of the word of God revealed by the Holy Spirit, inspired into Scripture, we now have a word that reveals certain things that other believers in other times didn't know. So it's something God has always known, but chosen to keep hidden in the past, but is now revealed in the New Testament. And don't miss the last part, to his saints, biblical mysteries are things that only believers understand. 
The world doesn't understand most of what the, the, the scripture reveals to us that, we're, that are mysteries. So it's something that only Christians understand because only Christians can really understand the word of God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, I believe, that the gospel itself is foolishness to the lost world, but to all, those of us who are being saved, it is the wisdom and power of God. So Christians understand God's truth. Non-believers do not. And so it's all revealed. M.R. Vincent, in his Greek commentary on this, talked about the word mystery. In, in the Greek, it's mysterion. And he said, mysterion is, defines that which was kept hidden from the world until revealed at the appointed time, and which is a secret to ordinary eyes, human eyes, but is made known by divine revelation. That's it. So that's a biblical mystery. And there are many of them, by the way, in the Old Testament era that Old Testament believers did not fully understand, but they're unraveled, if you will, by God in the New Testament era as he completed the scripture. There are many. There's such a long list that I studied this week that we'd be here until two o'clock for me to get through that. I'm not going to read the list. <laughs> I'm just going to focus on this one. This is a great mystery. Well, that's the second question. If we know what a biblical mystery is, that it's something God has always known, but chosen to keep hidden in the past, but is now revealed in the New Testament to his people, what is this mystery, this mystery hidden for ages, this particular one? Well, it had to do with the coming Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fact that he was not only going to arrive in history, go to a cross, pay for our sin, rise from the dead, and ascend into heaven, but that he would also indwell his people. Don't, freak, don't, don't miss the definition of this ministry, mystery. He defines it at the end of verse 27. This mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is a treasure for the Christian. You see, in the Old Testament time, those who were looking head, ahead to the arrival of Messiah, sincere believers, they, people, they were people who feared God and they knew the Messiah was coming, but they did not know that the Messiah would eventually indwell the very physical bodies and spirit of his people individually. And that their bodies would be the very temple of, of the living God and that Dwelling in their spirit would be God himself. This was not revealed to them, but Paul says it is now revealed to us through the New Testament, beginning with the teaching of Jesus as it was given and then inscripturated and all the way through the New Testament. This is epic. This means the God who has been outside of us actually dwells within his people. The God who was only worshipped in a physical temple by the nation of Israel, whose visible presence would come and go, is now in the very body and spirit of those that belong to him. This is a remarkable and beautiful possession only of the believer. It's epic. Now, let me walk you through a little bit of this. We see it uh, revealed in, in the teaching of Christ, for example. If we go to John chapter 14, Jesus began to predict this miracle, this mystery breaking into reality. In John chapter 14 and verse 23, he said this, If anyone loves me, becomes a believer in me, my true disciple, 
If anyone loves me, look at this, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. There it is. Make our home with him was a Greek word that translated what Jesus said as make your abode with them. And you could actually translate the Greek word in this sentence to move in. Wow. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and God the Father would be so closely related to you when you became a born-again believer that they have moved into who you are. That's epic. That's astounding. By the way, if you ever want any understandings of the security of salvation, I think that's one. They have moved into you. God the Father, God the Son are indwelling you and they will never leave you. (laughs) God cannot forsake himself. You're in Christ and Christ is in you. That is the most solid case for the absolute certainty of eternity that I know of. Anyway, I'm going to preaching and that's not in my notes. Sorry. (laughs) So here we see Christ predicting this marvel. In the chapter, earlier in the chapter, verse 17, he made a prediction about the the spirit of truth. Uh, John 14, 16, and 17, he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, comforter, one to come alongside to be with you forever. Now this has to be a forever person. That must mean the spirit of God. Jesus answers that question next verse. Even the Spirit, capital S, of truth, the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive. Remember, this is only for those that know Christ because it neither sees him or knows him. The world has no clue about the Holy Spirit, doesn't recognize his work or even acknowledge his existence. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be, can you finish it, in you. I think we're seeing a doctrine built here by the Lord Jesus. The mystery of Christ in you. The word in you is very, very complicated in the Greek that renders this word of Christ. Do you know what it means? In you. <laughs> it's the basic word for in. <laughs> okay, so you really can't argue with it. It's too simple to argue with. I mean, there it is. Now, this is true of every believer. We are indwelt by God. This is astounding. We are indwelt in body. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 talks about this. Paul later on develops this doctrine under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit not contradicting himself, but completing himself and and developing this doctrine in later scripture. Paul argues with the Corinthians who were still doing things with their bodies sexually that they were dragging in from part of their immoral past. And Paul confronts them and he says, listen, not only are you different people now, there's a different person living inside of you. And that changes what happens with with your body. You are physically indwelt in some miraculous way by God. Verse 19, 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So the very physicality of the believer 
is a place of the indwelling Holy Spirit. You say, how in the world can that be? I didn't notice anything like that happen when I prayed to receive Christ one night in a service. It's a mystery. (laughs) But we understand it by faith, and as we walk with him, he makes it clear to us by faith. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and 20. So it, we, are, we are indwelt in two ways, first in body, but second in spirit. Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, in who he was. In what Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 tell us are the new man in Christ. When you were regenerated, God created new spiritual life in you. Jesus said you were born again. A new dimension of being came into you. And into that dimension, I believe, God sweeps and stays. It's a marvelous thing. He dwells in you, in your spirit, if you will. Ephesians chapter 3 bears this out in in beautiful uh, words in Ephesians 3, 17. It talks about Christ dwelling in your hearts. So it's a reality, you see. Now, it's not just historical fact, and it's not just theological truth. Believers, it's personal. And Paul had a passion. As you go back to Colossians 1, his passion was to open the word under the power of the Holy Spirit so that you could really know this mystery. You'd fully know it. And it will become very real and very personal. Go from the theological to the personal. And believers, all pastors have a passion to see that happen. So if, if you want to know what pastors are all about, they have a passion to help people understand that wonderful mystery. Now second, in all of this, he and all pastors, if you want to know what a pastor's heart is like, have a passion to help people understand Also, a powerful possibility. So I've talked to you so far about what the Bible basically teaches, that God has changed the nature of how he's with his people. In our era, he is within us. He will never leave us. He has taken up his dwelling place within us, body and spirit. Now that's a biblical reality, but it's filled with powerful possibility. I mean, what would be the possibilities if God lived in you? What can God not do? Nothing. Now, some Christians have taken this idea, and, you know, we just have this tendency to go to the fantastic. And a lot of them have taken this idea and run right to the mystical with it. They've become part of the Christian mysticism movement, and they have pursued experiences like dreams and visions They've sought to pursue and see if they could witness or perform miracles. It's happened in every generation of our age. Maybe even seeking to see if they could receive new revelation from God. So they've taken this wonderful idea of Christ within them, the Holy Spirit within them, and they've taken it into places that just as your pastor, I would say, are doubtful at the very least and dangerous at the very most. You see, God has spoken. He has spoken here. And he has completed his revelation here. And so running to these different mystical experiences leads you into just that, experiences. I think the Bible speaks into two marvelous ways in which 
Christ within us works that are scripturally real. And they're available to every believer, not just those that receive prophetic words and, you know, go on YouTube to give you the morning briefing. There are two majestic things that every believer can know he or she has because Christ lives within them. Here's the first. There's the possibility of his presence to comfort you. The possibility of God's presence to comfort you. You know, if he is with you, if he dwells within you, it gives amplified meaning to one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Whenever I'm with someone who's facing a physical challenge, whenever I'm allowed to visit a hospital bed or be on the phone and talk with someone who's facing great fear over any issue in their life, whether it's a physical challenge or a sudden change in their world where they feel greatly alone, I often go to the precious words of the scripture where it says that he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, the actual text there amplifies just how impossible it is for Christ to ever leave you or forsake you. I guess I could translate the Greek there as, as saying, for he himself has said that he will never, ever, 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 in any way, in any possibility, at any time, no, never forsake you. That's how intensive that construction is. I've always been comforted by that. But when I did this study, I was reminded that he cannot forsake me because he has committed himself to dwell within me. He's as with me as he can get. Do you understand that? He's as present with me as he ever can be. By truth spoken to the inner man through his word. He's with me. No matter what I face, no matter what I'm afraid of, no matter what's unknown in my life, no matter how many people have abandoned me or how many situations have changed so that my normal yesterday is completely destroyed and I'm living in a crazy non-normal today, he is with me. For he cannot forsake himself. Oh, I drew great comfort from that. There's certainty in his constant care, but there's also... Simply the presence of who he is in my, my inner walk with him every day. You know, the scripture has said that Jesus Christ is described in three ways. When we talk about Christ Jesus, Jesus is his name, Christ is his title. You study your Old Testament, weave it together with what's revealed in the book of Hebrews and the New Testament and other places in scripture, and the title Christ by theologians, has come to mean three things about Jesus. He is prophet, priest, and king. And he's all those today. All of those today. He was prophet when he walked this earth as the ultimate prophet and truth teller, and he still tells ultimate truth today. He was a priest by offering himself and he now offers his wounds on our behalf and pleads against and over our sin in heaven's throne room today. And he is king in every dimension. And one day I'll be coming back to restore his physical kingship over this earth. 
But you see, I drew great comfort as I studied my Bible this week, knowing that, that the prophet and the priest and the king, my Christ, is within me, and he will minister to me in all of those roles. As prophet, that means that I'm indwelt by the ultimate teacher. Didn't Jesus say, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will lead you, speaking to the apostles, into all truth? He told them he's going to lead you into the truth that I want my body to have, and he's going to lead you to speak it and teach it, and then inscripturate it, and he will put it into a form that the church will never lose, and he will lead you in understanding of all things. I believe that ministry continues today through the word of God, so that when I need to know who God is, or what God says, or what God means, the word of God, amplified by the spirit of God, comes alive in me in power, and I understand it in clarity, because the very teacher of the word of God, the prophet himself, is in me. Go back to John 14. John 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and will be in you. God is, is dwelling within me today, and I possess within me the ultimate author of the Holy Scripture. Do I not? The Holy Spirit. What is he going to do? Go to chapter 16 of John. In the same narrative of teaching later that night, Jesus amplified it. And he said in John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he'll not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare it to you, the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The marvelous ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king. He dwells in my heart. And the Holy Spirit's ministry is to take the truth of Christ and make it real to me because the Bible says I'm not only a new man in Christ, I've been given a new mind in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 3. And I can understand the things given, freely given to me by God as the word of God is open. I'm telling you right now, it's awesome to know that I have the ultimate teacher dwelling in me. And then when I open his ultimate word, he will reveal ultimate truth to me. Do you believe that could make your personal study of the scripture a little bit more exciting tomorrow morning? That's how I do this. People say, you've been preaching for 30 years. How do you come up with something to say every week? I tell them, that's not my job. My job is to come to him to open his word and find out what he wants to say every week. It's pretty easy. In fact, my people tell me I preach so long because he told me more stuff than I can, I can cover. <laughs> I have never run out of what to tell a congregation. Because it's not about what I want to tell you. It's about what he has told me through that wonderful word. So I think you get, but you can do that in your intimate walk with God, in your own Bible, in your own uh, appeal to him, Lord, open my eyes. Help me to see wondrous things from thy law. You can do that in your own walk. Secondly, as the ultimate priest, he is my ultimate advocate. First John chapter one says, he was writing to these believers and John said, I, little children, I write to you these things to you that you may not sin. My hope is that you will continue to grow in obedience to him. But if, you, if anyone does sin, he has an advocate. Same word that Jesus, that describes what Jesus said in John 14, when he said, I will send you a helper, an advocate, one to come alongside and speak for you. An advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Do you battle with guilt in your Christian life? I do. Do you, do, do you step into sin in your Christian life? I do. Do you get under accusation from the enemy about what you've truly done and, and, and how it offends God. I do. 
John said when that happens, remember, you have an advocate with the Father. He not only is standing before the throne of God right now saying, Father, yes, my, my, my beloved fell in sin, but here are my scars and my blood pleads for them. I'm, I'm a high priest in heaven, but that high priest dwells in your heart. I don't know how to explain all that. I just know that I can go to Jesus when I've fallen and he's with me and he will not forsake me and he will remind me in some way through the wonder of his word and the best of my heart that I'm still forgiven and it's still covered and it's not a barrier between me and him. What a privilege. No wonder he said, this is a marvelous treasure. It's full of riches, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So he is there as prophet in my heart. He's there as priest in my heart. And finally, as king, he is the ultimate guide into what he wants me to do and to reflect his glory until he comes. Hebrews chapter 13, please, and verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Look at this. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. How do you obey God? Jesus Christ works in you what is pleasing in God's sight. You battle with sin, or you know you need to grow, but you're afraid to grow, and you struggle, and you feel like you're in this alone, or you feel like you're just in a religion and you got to perform. None of that's true. You're not alone, and you're in a relationship where he wants to do this through you. As the ultimate king, he wants his will seen and done in your life. One author put it this way. Christ in you, the one prophet and teacher by the whom the whole life is to be governed and ordered, whose philosophy is the only philosophy, whose teaching is the only teaching which the soul trusts. Christ in you as priest, the one perfect savior operating in the inner shrine of the individual life at the altar and by the way of sacrifice so that through his intermediation, not of Christ far off, but in me, I have personal and immediate access to the presence of God, which is both within and encompassing me. And Christ in me also is king, ruling all of my life, not by the law of human ordinances written on tables of stone, but by the perpetual inspiration of his indwelling presence. This is the essential, personal, individual miracle of Christianity. Christ in you. Oh, So there is a great extent of the possibility of Christ in you to comfort you, believer, your prophet, priest, and king, who will never, ever, ever leave you. Cannot forsake himself. Oh, I love that. And then secondly, there's the possibility of his power to strengthen you. This is precious. Ephesians, again, chapter 3. I'll just read verses 14 to 21. Paul could pray for the Ephesian believers with power because he knew that Christ was in them. And so he prayed for what Christ could do in them and strengthen them. Three ver- chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family on earth in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Look at that. Who's in your inner being? The Holy Spirit. What does he do when he's there? Somehow, in amazing ways, he strengthens you with his power. 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What does God do when you're deep, deep difficulties? He pours into your heart the knowledge that he's in control of this, as Gene prayed, but that he's also so full of love for you that his will for you is filled with love and you do not need to be afraid. Look at the next phrase, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I think that develops this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I've heard that verse claimed endless times for miracle power and by people saying that we can do miracles through that verse. It has nothing to do with miracles. It has, it has to do with God making his presence known in the individual believer and strengthening them in their walk in ways that we can't even comprehend. It's inner power. It's the ability to trust God and obey him. You see, it has a principle behind it, and that is that, well, the Christian life is basically humanly impossible. Anybody discovered this? The Christian life is humanly impossible. We cannot obey him the way he wants us to in our own strength. But as we grow in believers, we learn it's not a natural life, it's a supernatural life, that we have to trust him to live through us as we step out by faith, You can't ask God to help you. That's only part of the request. The other part of the request is, in fact, Lord, I can't do this unless you do it through me as I step out by faith. We need the Spirit's power not to help us, but to enable us. We've got to humbly admit we can't obey him in the ways that he wants. But we must ask God through the very presence of the Holy Spirit, verse 20, to do far more abundantly and do in my life what needs to be done by his power. When you face something you can't do or something you can't believe God for in your life, look to him and say, Lord, I can't do this, but I'm going to step out and do it believing that as I step out, you will show up and you will be enough for me and I'll be able to please you. God, I don't know what's going to happen in the future or or in this context, this problem, but you've told me to walk into tomorrow. Tomorrow terrifies me, Lord, but I'm getting up and I'm stepping out and believing that you're going to step up in my tomorrow and you're going to enable me to please you. This is the marvel of what's called the exchanged life. And pastors have a passion to see their people begin to taste it. Here's the last Thirdly, Paul really says here that he had a passion to help people understand an eternal promise. Go back to our passage. Don't miss this turn of phrase. The riches of the glory of this ministry, verse 27, which is Christ in you, and then he uses a phrase to amplify it. He says, the hope of glory. What could that mean? I mean, that's kind of a mystery inside of a mystery, isn't it? Well, I think it's a great assurance about heaven, personally. There's a lot of different views on this, a lot of commentators. I think he's saying, because we are indwelt by Christ inseparably, we can have the absolute certainty we'll be taken to heaven. 
two questions to amplify or clarify. One is, when he talks about a hope here, the hope of glory, we need to understand the difference between biblical hope and human hope. Like there's a difference between human mysteries, which people think they can unravel themselves, and, and biblical mysteries, which only God can reveal. There's also a difference between human hope and biblical hope. Human hope is always fundamentally a wish. Isn't it? Because we cannot control all things. We don't have all power or all knowledge. We can't stop all events and govern them. Whatever we're hoping happens in the future fundamentally is still ultimately going to be a wish. There's no ultimate certainty in it, right? Oh, we hope this happens, but we're not sure. Of course you're not. You're frail, fallible human beings. You're not even sure what you're hoping for is what you ought to hope for. Human hope is always fundamentally a wish and nothing more. Biblical hope, nope. Biblical hope, listen to me, beloved, is a certainty. Because God has told us you can count on it. Human hope's a wish, nothing more. Biblical hope is a certainty. The only issue is time. <laughs> only issue is time. Romans chapter 15. Take a look at that for a second here. Romans chapter 15. And verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God wants you to abound in hope. God would want, not want you to abound in something that he knew was ultimately a lie. He's not that kind of a Lord, is he? We can abound in hope as Christians. We can be filled with the power of believing that by the Holy Spirit because God gives hopes that are certain. The only issue is how he's going to work that out in his plan. Now, when you take a look at this last phrase, I believe the glory he's speaking of there is eternal glory. What we'll experience in heaven. And that's the second question. Not only what is a biblical hope, it's a certainty. But the second question is what is the Christ glory connection? I think the connection here is about us being certain that we will get to heaven because Christ is in us and with us. You know what your passport to heaven is? It's not a what. It's a who. Christ in you. The hope of glory. And hope is certainty in the Bible. Christ is your passport to heaven and mine. He dwells in you. He will never leave you. And heaven happens to be where he's headed. Ephesians chapter 1 opens some of this for us. Let's turn there for a moment. Ephesians 1, verse 13. Actually, earlier he talks... Well, let's just start with verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our hope. And he is the one who has broken down every wall, the dividing wall of hostility. There's a dimension in which there is no more dimension of, of division between you and God. Gentiles have been brought into the same privilege that so many others had understood. You know, I look at heaven, and I believe that because Christ is in us, we're guaranteed to go to heaven. We're guaranteed to go there. No question about it. He is that marvelous. 
that strong. We're in him. He's in us. And when we get to heaven, well, it's a natural step over. Christ is your passport to heaven. Do you know that you know that Christ is in your life, believer? Do you know that in your heart? Heaven's just as real. Heaven's just as certain. There's another place in Ephesians that I really wanted to go, not there, to be honest with you. Been in my excitement, I can't find it. We're in Him, He's in us. He's our passport to heaven. Do you know that you know that Christ is in your life? You know, believers that I meet after a certain period of time, they develop a certainty that they have a personal relationship with Jesus. They go from a decision to a relationship. Isn't that true? Don't you know now in your Christian life after years of walking with him that he really is with you? Don't you know through many years of prayer that he really visits you in prayer because he is in you? Don't you really know now after years of Bible study that it reveals truth to you right in the moment from the page and that you know as Scripture confirms it that God has spoken to you through his word, that he is in you, the wonderful teacher, the prophet, the priest, and the king? Well, if you know that is real, what he's basically saying at the end of this phrase here is heaven is that real too. If you can be certain that you'll meet Jesus tomorrow when you open your word and he ministers personally, you can be certain you could meet Jesus tomorrow if he took you in death and you'd be in heaven. Pastors love it when people get that. So to conclude, Paul says this was a mystery, but it's now a reality that all Christians can experience. It's just, it's sad to pastors that not all Christians do. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's one of the greatest truths taught in the Bible, and yet it's seriously kind of missing in a lot of believers today and in a lot of churches today. A lot of Christians in our churches understand and believe that Christ died for their sins, but most fail to go kind of beyond the basics, if you will. They fail to go from the, 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 the functional to the relational dimension of knowing him. But that's where God wants you to go, beloved. And that's where God wants to lead you. He wants to bring real change in your behavior as you walk with the king. He wants to bring real understanding to your mind as you walk with the great prophet and teacher. And he wants to bring great assurance into your life. When you falter and fail that the great high priest is at the throne room, but dwelling within your heart too. So uh, do you want to make your pastor happy? Then all you have to do is begin to discover this mystery more deeply in your life.